Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we'll talk about the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package and what it will mean for impoverished Americans. There are lots of provisions in this legislation aimed at long-term poverty relief, and we'll hear about them from Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Michigan League for Public Policy CEO Gilda Jacobs. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. The new $1.9 trillion COVID relief package out of Washington, D.C. is going to have a huge impact on vaccine distribution, on unemployment benefits, local governments, and schools. And, of course, you're already starting to hear from people who have gotten the $1,400 payments that the stimulus bill included as well. But today we want to focus on one of the really remarkable aspects of the package and one of the things that is not getting as much attention as the $1,400 checks or some of the other provisions. This is perhaps the biggest anti-poverty legislation that Congress has proved in more than half a century. I've heard lots of people comparing it to the Great Society programs that Lyndon Johnson introduced in the 1960s. This legislation could cut childhood poverty in half. The investments made in this package are not simply about getting through the pandemic and getting the economy going again. They're about transforming lives in lasting ways. A little later in the show, I'm going to talk with Gilda Jacobs, who's president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy, who says this bill mirrors her group's anti-poverty agenda in a lot of ways and will have a huge impact here in Michigan. But first, I want to welcome one of the people who helped craft and voted for this plan to rescue America. Rashida Tlaib is a Democrat from Detroit who represents Michigan's 13th district in Congress. Rashida, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for so much for having me. So uh, talk about your overall feelings about how the final version of this package turned out. I know there were some some disappointments, some things that uh, people wanted to see in this bill that couldn't get through the Senate. But are you happy with where we are? I mean, this is probably a bill that is going to transform many of my neighbors in the 13th district's lives, especially because their lives were directly impacted for the past year because of this global health crisis. And I know many of your listeners and others know that, you know, many of our neighbors are already in survivor mode before this pandemic. They're dealing with a broken healthcare system, education system, and and so many other structures that were just not ready for this public health crisis. And so the direct aid to people, to local communities, That is so different from what we've seen kind of in the past, the aggressiveness of it, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we are able to cut, you know, child poverty by half, uh, it is tremendous. And yes, there is disappointment, of course, in my district, if we had the $15 minimum wage included uh, and it remained in there, I voted for it twice uh, in the package, but when it got to the Senate, it was pulled out. But that would have helped about 38% of my neighbors in the 13th district. So I'm not done fighting for that and, and many other, I think, really important provisions. Yeah. So so that, that distinction between this stimulus bill and the one that just passed in, in near the end of last year is really, really remarkable. I, I mean, it really does speak to the differences between the two parties. Uh, when when we think about what needs to happen right now, talk about some of the really significant things that are in this bill that deal with structural or long term problems that we didn't see come out of Congress uh, before 
before the Democratic majority took over in the Senate? Well, one of them is the major change and transformation in how we address child poverty in our country. But I want to get to the point of, you know, many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle were just demanding, I mean, almost by force, open the schools. Mm -hmm. And many of the teachers in the school community and parents were saying, okay, yes, open schools, but we need resources to open it safely. I know in this bill, $1.2 billion alone uh, is included for schools just in my district uh, in billions across the country to basically be able to get to that point where we can open schools. Again, schools weren't prepared to function uh, safely for our children uh, during a pandemic. And so that's the difference. You see the aid, not just language saying, do this, do that, but actually saying, okay, we're here as a partner on the federal government level. We're going to help you fund the air filtration. We're going to help you fund the PPE uh, requirements and needs. We're going to help you reduce your class sizes, uh, extend some of the programming so that you, again, be able to provide a safe environment for our kids to be able to come to -to face-to-face schooling again. Hmm. Of course, also what was missing, uh, and it's a huge lift, what was really missing in uh, previous packages is the aid, the aggressive aid to local governments. You know, I have smaller communities like Highland Park, E-Course. E-Course alone, Stephen, 70% of the residents there have not been able to pay their water bill. Mm. So they're really suffering, and and E-Course, the city, has to take in that cost. And so there is now direct aid to some of our smaller populated communities. The smaller communities, again, many were on survivor mode prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic made it worse. So you see $350 billion in there for state and local government. Uh, that's really going to help our public, uh, you know, health workers, our frontline workers that help our cities and communities stop the spread of COVID. You also, uh, the major one that um, I think advocates, uh, and you're going to hear from Guild and so many others that have been working on poverty in our country among children, is that there is this huge lift. It's, again, very transformative. We were able to you know, per child, give about $3,000. And if it's six years or younger, it's $3,600 per child uh, living in poverty in our country. And what's significant about it is 38% uh, of that lift will be in Black communities. Mm. And and again, that's really uh, an incredible lift and addressing, again, the importance of uh, making sure our children are safe during right. this pandemic. Yeah. So, so I, I've heard a lot of criticism of the package from Republicans and conservatives. Over the weekend, I was listening to a radio show where uh, the hosts were talking about how this really is just uh, legislation that that gets done a lot of long term Democratic policy priorities rather than focusing on the economic crisis or the public health crisis uh, specifically. There are a lot of examples that they've given. One of them, for instance, is money that is going to shore up uh, pension funds uh, that have been underfunded for for a long time. Walk us through your response, though, to that, to that criticism. I, is it fair to say that this is just the Democrats' chance to do things that they couldn't do when when Republicans were in charge, or is it really about thinking differently about what relief actually actually means, that it's not just about the instant crisis, but that we have bigger problems that need solving? You know, the, what this pandemic did is showed uh, the nation, the, the really globally, that this economic divide in our country, in the United States of America, the richest country in the world, is real, that we're not we weren't ready for this because we, we were doing this so-called, quote, do nothing approach on poverty, do nothing on, on helping our working class, do nothing about the fact that we don't have access to home ownership. You know, th- there's so much uh, brokenness in systems that just, if anything, just showed that there wasn't really a safety net for the American people. There wasn't a safety net for our neighbors, uh, from those that are frontline workers to those that don't have access to child care, from those that are retired and still suffering and don't have access to quality health care. I can go on and on. But I think it's interesting when I have colleagues say that because they're completely silent when they do it for corporations. Mm. And what I mean by that is in the previous packages, there were huge amounts of bailout. 
I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars to, to companies that were not actually suffering like our families were. You know, they, they, they were still making money. They were making profits in the stock market. Some of them have actually become wealthier. Their companies have become wealthy, these corporations that we so-called needed bailed out. Mm-hmm. And they held that hostage. You know, Stephen, I was there when they kept pushing it on us and saying, we're not going to send that $1,200 to your people if you don't support this. That was what they, there was the priority for many of my colleagues. And they don't blink. Not once do they even question or accountability is, you know, if we bail out this airline, are they going to protect the workers? Because every time we do that, we turn around and guess what? Our neighbors that work at, you know, in Romulus at the Detroit Metro Airport, they're getting laid off still. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even though the federal government tried to so-called give them resources and money to so-called keep jobs in place. So I think it's really important for people to push back on just how disingenuous it is when colleagues say that. When when I look at the forty billion dollars alone, just alone on helping evictions, water assistance, utility assistance, these are bills that keep coming, even though we have moratoriums in. And I know even though all of them don't understand, like open up, open up. They kept saying to us, and I said, yes, we will. Can we put $20 billion in there for mobile vaccinations? You know, I need uh, vaccinations that can be mobile, that we can go to senior centers, that we can go to communities that are, you know, very vulnerable, don't have access to really quality, you know, transit systems. Let's go to them and let's, let's get them vaccinated. Invest in, again, the people. And so, Stephen, uh, you can, they can continue saying we need to do this, we need to open up, we need to get our schools up and running, but they don't want to provide the resource to do it. But boy, when it comes to corporations, don't even which are functioning just fine in many cases, they they don't hesitate. And mm-hmm. so I think it's really important for people to understand um, just how disingenuous when I hear that. And uh, you know, I mean, alone the fact that we're going to be able to go a lot more mobile will address the you know racial disparities and what we've seen with COVID-19 outcomes. Yeah. Uh, the other the other instance in which you don't see Republicans asking these kinds of questions or leveling this kinds of criticism is when was when tax cuts uh, are are on the table and you know the the Trump tax cuts uh, cost us about 1.3 to 1.5 trillion dollars. They said it would generate $1.8 trillion in revenue, that which would, of course, pay for itself. That's something they often uh, trot out when they're talking about tax cuts. Of course, that hasn't happened. It, it, it ended up adding a lot of money uh, to the national to the national debt. And, and I mean, it's fair to say, well, you know, what's the what is the reason that stimulus uh, is not a good idea if tax cuts are a, a good idea. And we know that, you know, tax cuts were not normed. I mean, all kinds of people who have lots of means got those tax cuts. Uh, it wasn't targeted at low-income people. And uh, so, it you know, it ends up costing more because most people of means don't go out and spend that kind of money. They save it, and that doesn't really get the economy going. Um, uh, so that's another instance, I think, of the, the the double standard here uh, in, in the criticism that we're hearing from the other the other side of the aisle, um, you know, I, I wonder if you can talk a little more about um, uh, the, the the federal child tax credits uh, and what that's going to mean for families and kids here in Southeast Michigan. You mentioned. Uh, and your first answer that uh, the the $15 minimum wage would have helped 38% of the people in your district. That's such an incredible number, an incredible stat. I, I would imagine that we, we've got to be talking about very similar numbers with this fi- federal uh, child tax credit. I mean, overall across the country, it, it'll reduce overall poverty rate by 9%, mm-hmm. so not just among children. And then, as I mentioned, it reduced poverty in black communities by at least 42 percent, which is huge. Okay. So there's not only the, the direct, you know, uh, tax credit to families with children with a child poverty, uh, child uh, uh, tax credit, which, you know, is expanded so that uh, many of our families don't have to wait until 2022 to file, but also they, there's all these processes that are placed that kind of create a barrier. You know, some of my folks don't even qualify to file federal returns, so sometimes they're not even uh, able to, you know, uh, benefit from that credit because they're not applying, they don't know, it's a, they're not aware of it. And so we've also uh, made it much easier 
again, because they do qualify to actually access it. But I think it's really important to understand this is a structural change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is what colleagues say, oh, this shouldn't be. I say, yes, absolutely should be in here because guess what? We don't have a safety net for our most vulnerable, our children, uh, during a global pandemic. And our families can't even, you know, be able to go to work because they don't have child care. And you just hear these horrible stories of families really, truly struggling and stuck because we just didn't create, uh, again, systems and safety net systems for our families. I mean, that's why you see many of my colleagues, the head of the chair of appropriations right now, mm-hmm. her leading um, uh, effort in making sure we have access to child care uh, is number one. She's been working on it for years, but if anything, the pandemic just moved her timeline even more in saying we have to do this quicker and now. And again, uh, you know, I always love what Sonia Renee Taylor says, you know, she's a poet, and incredible author. And she she says, you know, before the pandemic, it wasn't normal. You know, people constantly say, let's get back to normal. But it wasn't normal uh, what we allowed to happen to our neighbors that are struggling, that are that are working hard every day, that are trying to do everything that they possibly can do. But they're still, you know, grasping onto poverty wages. They're still struggling. They don't have health care. Uh, and again, all these safety nets, if anything, you know, we, we, we've somehow, um, you know, brushed it aside. And now the pandemic is saying to us, uh, you messed up. Like the economic mm-hmm. divide is real. More, you know, more of my black neighbors were dying at a higher rate of COVID, even though they made up less than in some areas, much less than um, the whole population mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, the fact that our school system, you know, just really truly wasn't set up. They didn't have Wi-Fi, you know, broadband internet access. Uh, the, you know, some of the schools that I grew up with, we at least had one nurse. Now, you know, there's a completely empty, like there's no kind of healthcare, uh, uh, component, uh, you know, attached to our school system. So there's a number of things like, if anything, Stephen, that just, uh, is very clear to us that, that do nothing. Uh, approach really did um, hurt our families to the point now that they've lost loved ones. They are forever changed. And I just don't want to have to continue to do this. And it shouldn't have took a pandemic to expose some of the broken, again, structures and systems. Yeah, I'm talking with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat from Detroit who represents Michigan's 13th district in Congress. We're talking about the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that Congress passed Last week, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think about that bill. What will the $1,400 direct payments in that bill mean for you? Uh, Also, give us a sense of what you think of the anti-poverty provisions that are in this package, the things that are not just focused on the instant problems that we have, but some of the structural problems that we have had for many years that make it difficult or impossible for people to get above the poverty line in this uh, in this country, and especially in our community here in Southeast Michigan, as always, the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work them into the conversation. Also, we want to hear from you if you think this is not the way to solve poverty or get the economy going. If you're a little concerned about Uh, some of the provisions that are in this bill and think that it should have stuck just to instant kinds of uh, COVID relief. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's uh, start with Craig in Southfield. Craig, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. And uh, I want to say thank you for Congressman uh, Rashida. Um, I really appreciate you addressing the elephant in the room. Um, Let me start off by saying, you know, this goes back to when Ronald Reagan became president and David Stockman was the treasurer, mm-hmm. and they created this scenario of trickle-down economics. If we benefit corporations, they would generate economic activity that would benefit the population as a whole. Well, we know that didn't work because corporations are not beholden to the societal population. They're beholden to the stockpayers, mm-hmm. to the stockholders, and that's not going to change. I understand that. It didn't work then, and it never worked. And him, will we approve uh, a budget just, just recently under our previous president that gave all this money to corporations, and what did they do? They increased their bottom line, stock prices go up, 
workers get laid off. So here we have a Congress that's elected by individuals, a population, a populace, that is fed up with the status quo, yeah. and they're showing it by their votes. Yeah. And the, 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 the party in power says, you know what? We have to change the voting system because this is not working for us. And no, this economic package, uh, Congressman Tlaib, will not solve the poverty problem. But what it will do is put money in the hands of the people who can use it the most. Yeah, Craig, and that, I applaud you guys. Craig, I really appreciate the call and and the comments and and that 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 line about the Republican pursuit of this idea of trickle down economics, which certainly goes back to Reagan. I'd say it goes back a little further as well, but uh, that is the the central tension here uh, between the two parties. And, and, you know, it plays out uh, pretty dramatically when we have a change of authority in Washington that you see one approach when Republicans are in charge, you see something really different uh, when Democrats are there. Uh, Craig, I appreciate the, the, the call and comments. Let me take one more call before we get back to uh, Congresswoman Tlaib. Ben in St. Clair Shores, uh, quickly. Uh, thank, welcome to the show. Ben, I, you got to turn your radio down, bud. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm here. Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> Yeah, this program reminds me of the 70s. Uh, I grew up in Flint, and there were a lot of urban uh, community programs that erected basketball courts in the cities where there weren't any, uh, developed different kinds of urban activity centers, uh, such as Model City, where I participated in a program. It was similar to the, the show Fame, where you go and learn stagecraft, photography, mm-hmm. Uh, modern jazz dance, that sort of thing. Eventually, it all played out. And at the same time, I noticed they were taking vocational training out of the school. They took away typing. They took away how to cook, how to uh, do work, work woodcraft and electricity. All of that started leaving the urban communities going to the suburbs. Yeah. This program can wind up being a, an identical process. Yeah, it's a band-aid for the community, and then it fades. Right. Uh, ben, I appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, Congresswoman Tlaib, uh, the, the idea that this is the largest anti-poverty legislation since the Great Society uh, efforts that, that uh, Johnson uh, proposed in the 60s. I mean, that's a huge, huge burden, I think, for for it to have to live up to. Uh, tell us tell us what your expectations are in terms of how we know it's a success. Uh, we're going to know it's, it's a success if it targets those who are in deep poverty and identifies, um, you know, uh, the, those that are, again, are most need that are struggling to put food on the table. You know, even just hearing from my residents now, you can hear it in their breath, like where they're like, you know, breathing out, this is going to help so much. Uh, and, you know, for many of us, uh, especially myself and others, this is the kind of, you know, so-called bailout that we needed, right? This is the kind of programs and, and policy changes that we were really fighting to see that really touches people directly. You know, we constantly keep hearing about different uh, you know, ideas and, and these kinds of changes and language that people want to do. They think that this is, this is it. And I said, no, give it to the people. Uh, you know, they deserve human dignity. Mm-hmm. Stop, stop hovering over and pretending that it's, it's something else when it is because we just allow our people to live uh, in poverty in a way because we're not forcing folks to pay a living wage. We're not uh, pushing for access to universal health care in our country. We're not really looking at equitable funding of our schools. Uh, you know, there's just so many, again, structures that are in place that have just been set up against a lot of our families. You know, and what Ben said was perfect. You know, it's interesting that he said this because I went at Southwestern High School. I remember in the 10th grade, you know, people were talking about dropping out. They weren't really interested. They had to go make money for their families. And then there was Votech. In Votech, there would be a bus that picked up folks, took them to go lightly. They teach welding. They te- they would te- uh, teach them uh, a number of things. So by the time they got out, I had a, co- a friend 
who became a mechanic. That's what he wanted to do. And now he owns his own like mechanic shop in Southwest Detroit. Mm. But it's just, it, it is that kind of sustainability. And Ben's right. We used to do those yes. incredibly important programming uh, and that did touch people's lives, got them out of the cycle of poverty. But we stopped doing that. You know, instead, to be honest, I, I see more policing. Uh, we have a department of like a police department within our schools now. There's, you know, all kinds of kind of more militar, militarizing and criminalization of our kids instead of counselors and nurses. Uh, in Votech, they have police officers trying to handle their anger problems or be the social workers. That's not what those folks are trained to do, right? Mm. And so it is a huge shift that I've seen just among our society of emphasizing uh, less emphasis on those kinds of change, you know, investment in people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, it's always great to have you here with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about anti-poverty legislation with the president and CEO of a group here in Michigan that spends a lot of time pushing for these policies to reduce childhood poverty in particular. We'll ask her what she thinks of the new COVID relief package. We also want to continue to hear from you about COVID relief. Are we headed in the right direction, or are you worried about what's in this bill? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about anti-poverty legislation and the ways in which the COVID relief bill that passed Congress last week is significant anti-poverty legislation. Lots of people making comparisons between what passed last week and the efforts that President Johnson undertook in the 1960s uh, in his war on poverty uh, with uh, great society uh, legislation. Um, uh, we want to hear from you uh, this hour as well. What you think about the COVID relief package, $1.9 trillion uh, is what passed Congress. Uh, $1,400 payments to Americans are included in there, but there's also lots of other money for local governments and, of course, this targeted money uh, at anti-poverty uh, anti poverty efforts. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. I want to welcome another really important voice to the conversation. Uh, Gilda Jacobs is the president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy and has spent decades here in Michigan really working on the idea of anti-poverty policy, but in particular anti-poverty policy that would affect children, lift children out of uh, out of poverty. Uh, Gilda, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Yeah. So uh, give me your overall reaction to the American Rescue Plan that became law last week. Sure. Well, needless to say, we were actually very thrilled at how this targeted uh, working class um, and, and low income um, families and their kids. It is in many respects, very laser focused. And um, just here in Michigan, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, even millions are really gonna be uh, positively impacted by uh, this infusion of um, uh, dollars into, into our economy. Um, it's going to help fix schools. It's going to put more food on the table. Um, it's going to help um, replace some of those lost jobs that that are so important. Um, so we're 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 pretty pleased. So many of the things that we've been advocating for for decades are really addressed in this package. And so let's talk about some of the specific things in this package that sure. have your attention. You, As I said in the open, you spent a lot of time looking at childhood poverty in particular. 
What is it about this bill uh, that has you thinking that we're headed in the right direction? Yeah. So, you know, we we know that because of these sort of targeted um, changes, if we look at the child tax credit that um, um, is being uh, expanded, the earned income tax credit for uh, for workers who don't have minority uh, uh, who, who don't have um, younger uh, kids living uh, minority age kids living uh, in their homes, those in 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 itself are affecting um, uh, a, a huge amount of kids that they're lifting out of poverty. Um, there there are so many studies that have been done over the the years to show that. Um, their income tax credit, for example, is one of the hugest poverty fighters, uh, one of the best tools that we have in our toolbox mm. to address childhood poverty. So that that's a part of this. I mean, the very fact that there's rental assistance, for example, um, you know, when you have families that have to move from apartment to apartment, um, a lot of those kids end up dropping out of school, disappearing, we don't know, you know where, where they are. It's amazing how many homeless kids are actually um, enrolled, in, enrolled in schools. But, you know, additionally, in terms of K, there's a lot of K, K through 12 dollars that are being infused into the economy um, um, aimed uh, at the, the lowest income kids. So, you know, we take a look at kids in Detroit, Flint, Grand Rapids. There's going to be uh, an infusion of dollars there that can be used for a myriad of, of things to improve um, learning in the learning environment and the health and welfare of the kids and uh, and their teachers as well. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us how you're feeling about uh, this monumental piece of legislation that passed uh, Congress last week aimed at uh, eliminating uh, poverty or alleviating poverty in our in our country, and especially focusing on childhood poverty. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, uh, and we'll work you in that way. Uh, before we get back to listeners, Gilda, I want to talk just a little about uh, the comparison between what we're going to try now and what was tried in the 1960s. Some of the criticism that I'm hearing about this legislation is that this didn't work in uh, the 1960s, that, that uh, Johnson's War on Poverty, uh, Great Society legislation didn't eliminate poverty the way that, that it promised uh, and that it cost a lot of money. A lot of conservatives are very concerned about the price tag here, uh, and the uh, the growth of the national debt that will re- result from from mm-hmm. this spending. Um, talk about that comparison, and talk about why uh, why we shouldn't be focused or concerned about uh, about the money. Yeah. So I guess my my answer is <laughs> I have a couple of answers to that. So first of all, you know, if you look at what could have happened had. Johnson not done what he did, things would have been a whole lot worse. Mm. So, um, um, you know, I think you really have to take that into consideration. You know, they they did move the needle. Maybe they didn't. You know, he uh, he and his uh, uh, um, you know, and and that program didn't do all that they had hoped it would do, but it certainly did a lot to alleviate poverty for a lot of uh, a lot of families. Um, so, you know, just because. You know, we, we shouldn't give up on something just because it didn't achieve the results. We have to figure out well, what, what went wrong. What do we have to do differently? And here's an opportunity for us to do that now. Um, you know, the, the 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 question that I have is that if we didn't do what what's in this COVID relief package, what kind of state would would our our country, but our state, be in? If not, I mean, we you know we before the pandemic hit. We already had a lot. Uh, we just started to teeny weeny move the needle on, on, on childhood poverty, but we still had half of the kids in in our state, all over our state, on free and reduced lunch or reduced lunch, which tells you that you know that there were that, that there were problems, and so much of the money that's going to be going into these programs will create jobs. 
will be an economic stimulus. Um, you know, let's let, let's just take for example. Um, you know, we still have lead in in our water. Um, we still have very old infrastructures in our schools where we need to go in and change the heating and cooling systems and the air filter filtration systems and making sure that we get rid of lead pipes and that drinking water is safe every place. Um, so not only is that a good public health thing to do, but it also creates an awful lot of jobs for people to go in and, you know, and mitigate uh, and mitigate those problems. So, you know, the, the, the spending of this money just doesn't go into somebody's vacation to, you know, to Jamaica. It really is creating um, um, a, a big economic revenue source for small businesses. The earned income tax credit, for example, we've got tons of, of information that you can access off of our website, even before this new influx of money to show how many millions of dollars go back into local economies because of this. Um, and, you know, and Republicans, I mean, the EITC, for example, is a program that was created by Republicans. They know that this, they know that this works. We have proof that it works. Um, so, you know, I think we have to just stop using, you know, sort of ideological um, philosophy to, uh, to look at it. Um, you know, at some of these programs, but look at the data that's out there, and the data proves that um, the data prove that we um, know that these policies are are going to be really important. Mm. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to John in Detroit. John, what's on your mind? Hi, good Hi. morning, and thank you for having me on your program. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm an older guy. I'm sixty seven. I live in Detroit. And I recall uh, growing up um, somewhat in North Carolina back then, um, prior to the legislation of the Great Society in 1968. And I have witnessed firsthand a, um, a, almost a disintegration since that legislation has passed of the black community. Our increased rates of single parenting has has exploded. I'm live in Detroit, and I see I see a, a, a mass of people that aren't working and driving in new trucks, new vehicles on Section Eight, and I see these children that are being born with no no guidance and so what we've got is unrest with the youth in the in pockets like detroit and chicago and elsewhere because they don't have anything to live for they have no anticipation of what life can be when you give money for free it don't work we saw that with the pandemic this year I'm also a contractor. I couldn't find anybody to work because they were getting government payouts. So the Bible says. So John, I, I I appreciate the call and and you know I appreciate you participating in the in the program. But but there are a lot of things you said that just aren't true. Um, certainly, uh, we have not seen the amount of black economic progress that all of us would like to see since the 1960s, but there is no denying that uh, the, the anti-poverty uh, efforts that were started in the 1960s and, and in addition with lots of other policies over you know, the, the, the intervening decades have produced uh, a far uh, more widespread uh, black middle class than we've ever seen before. Uh, you know, uh, black home ownership uh, is is higher now than than it has been in the past. I mean, there are lots of indicators that show that these things did work. I, I do want to talk specifically, though, about your idea that somehow this is giving people something for free, and that you don't feel like giving people something for free motivates them uh, to actually to actually work. Because I think that's a pretty common criticism of this kind of. Uh, of legislation, and I want Gilda to talk about this idea of free and motivation and the things that actually do move people from from poverty uh, to to a better economic 
uh, station. Uh, Gilda, can you address John's sure. point? Um, so, you know, I, I'm kind of a numbers geek, so I'm going to give you give you some numbers here because I think it's important to take a look at that. So if we look at, at the federal unemployment benefits that, that folks are getting, so now they're going to be getting an additional $300 um, a week, uh, I think through September 6th, and then there's another like $200 and some other federal um, uh, unemployment benefits. So let's say that, that's $500. That sounds like a lot of money. The average wage weekly wage in Michigan is $1,115. Mm -hmm. So people are really getting only half of what they actually need. I don't even know if need is the right word because if you take a look at the um, uh, the Alice uh, index um, to, to figure out what does it actually cost somebody to live in our uh, in our state and in our, in our, in our county, for example, um, it's probably, it is, I know, less than, uh, um, more than what this average wage is for for uh, for an individual and somebody raising kids. So, you know, I, I think that you really have to look at the cost of not doing something. Um, and and uh, I think we have to be be focused on that because I think that's where you have um, some you know very far-reaching effects is if you um, uh, you know if if you turn your your back to 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 poverty to you know, some of these um, uh, uh, situations that people are living in, um, it's really untenable as a, you know as our great society. Mm -hmm. So um, I really you know have to take umbrage with you know with John with many of your comments. Um, but, um, and again, the money that is, um, being used now to create financial assistance, and it is, um, this is temporary. We, we could have another conversation actually about what, how we need to fix our safety net permanently, which, um, is where sort of the league is coming from, taking a look at these policies that, um, you know, we've had a gin up now that there is this huge pandemic, mm -hmm. there's an economic and health crisis, but there was actually a crisis in terms of our safety net programs uh, way before that this happened. We have been systematically cutting back our safety net program without any flexibility at all in um, uh, uh, sort of in the philosophy of how they were set up. And I think in many respects, it's part of the reason we got caught the problem that we did uh, so early on in Michigan. You know, in Michigan, we, we're still uh, trying to recover from the, the huge loss of, of jobs from, from 2008. Many of those jobs were never um, recovered or people never even went back to work. Mm. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Gilda Jacobs of the Michigan League for Public Policy. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks very much for joining. I'm talking with Gilda Jacobs. She's the president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy. We're talking about the COVID relief package that passed Congress last week and is now already putting money in people's pockets. Lots of people on social media talking about uh, the $1,400 showing up in their uh, bank accounts from the federal government. That's part of this COVID relief package. There are also a number of provisions that are aimed at eliminating poverty and lifting childhood uh, poverty in particular, dealing with childhood poverty uh, here in Southeast Michigan and across the country. Uh, we want to hear from you about what you think of uh, the provisions in this bill. Do you think this is the right direction or do you think uh, this is perpetuating poverty by making people reliant on government support? Uh, we did hear from a listener who was concerned about uh, about that dynamic. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 
You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Elena in Detroit. Elena, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Hey. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. I just wanted to say that um, I am a um, benefactor of the Great Society money of the 70s because I was able to go to school for free at Wayne State in Chicano Boricua Studies, Mm. and I earned a bachelor's degree, and then I went on and earned a master's degree, and I had not a penny of student debt, unlike my three daughters who are drowning in student debt, Mm. literally drowning, and it almost keeps them off the grid. But the other thing I wanted to say also, and I think this is really important, I I inherited a different kind of debt. And to the person who thinks that no one should get free money, I wondered just exactly how much he may have paid on his reparations bill. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Elena, uh, great point, and I appreciate the call, and I especially appreciate the point about the help you got going to college. So this is a great answer to the, the, the issue that John was bringing up in his call earlier, this idea of people getting, quote-unquote, free things and therefore uh, not contributing. Uh, paying for someone to go to college, for instance— uh, or helping someone pay to go to college is a great idea of is a great way to invest in uh, their future productivity and to keep them out of the debt, as you point out, Elena, that saddles so many people uh, today that uh, people who have college degrees but can't get ahead because they continue to pay for them. I mean, this idea of uh, what's free and what benefit it has is kind of murky, I think, in, in a lot of people's minds. Uh, Elena, I think that's a really crystal clear example of uh, of why of why this kind of approach actually uh, actually can work. So I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, let's go to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, good morning. Mm-hmm. Morning, Ms. Jacobs. Um, you're making some interesting points um, about the Great Society reforms, yourself and some guests on the phone as well. But uh, we need to see the full fruition of this current package that just went through Congress and the Senate. But President Johnson was formerly a master of the Senate. And I think what needs to be in place in Washington today is a convincing voice in the Senate you know, to get those people Get those senators and congressmen from the South and uh, those that have opposition to um, the current uh, reforms. Uh, uh, Mark, I, I appreciate the call uh, and the comments. That's a great historical perspective about how that came about and, and the fight uh, to, to, to get it done. Uh, Gilda, respond to Mark and yeah, uh, as a former legislator, you know, John President Johnson was a magnificent. Um, um, a politician knew how to compromise, knew how to how to bring people together, and um, I I think that just if we take a look at his skill set in terms of doing that, you know, that's something that um, you know I think we've seen lacking <laughs> over mm-hmm. the last number of years. Um, but I think you know you, again your historical perspective, as as Steve points out, is uh, is really important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to Joanne in Waterford. Joanne, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, Hi. I just uh, wanted to say I'm um, retired. I'm on a, a fixed income, but it's a nice um, fixed income, and um, so I have been donating all of my checks to charities to cats and. Uh, Habitat for Humanity, places like that. And I would like to challenge other people who don't really need these stimulus checks to um, Hmm. spread it around. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, Joanne, and that's a really generous thing to be doing instead of, uh, you know, taking the money if you don't feel like uh, you need it. Uh, Her her point, though, Gilda, reminds me of the questions about norming these kinds of things, uh, mm-hmm. the, things like stimulus. Uh, of course, Republicans never talk about norming tax cuts, uh, but but they are talking about the idea here of trying to 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 make sure that people who don't quote unquote need it uh, don't get it. What's what's your answer to that, 
Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and I think that, that again, what she's doing is, is is great. I mean, even eating out at a or picking up food at a local restaurant um, is helping those restaurants stay alive. So you know, you can use your stimulus check and have you know and uh, and have a meal, enjoy the meal, but also be be putting money into the the pockets of those workers. Um, so there's lots of ways that you know people can kind of spread around that that um, that stimulus check. But I think it's really important, you know, as as she points out, that you know we we there's lots of ways that all of us can benefit from this. Um, and um, I think that that's a, a you know I wouldn't even just say a creative way, but a very generous way uh, to to continue to help the um, the the millions of families that really are still struggling even with this you know with with the stimulus check mm-hmm. um and again you know i think that our job is going to be how do we take a look at what changes need to be made permanent um because the the pandemic has really shined a light on those kinds of um issues that uh, we really haven't addressed for for many years and right. you know whether it's um structural racism um you know taking a look at the statistics of who uh, has been more uh impacted by this than other groups um and there's a there's an opportunity here to really make some important changes as we figure out the norming as you say uh steve yeah Okay, uh, Gilda Jacobs, president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy. It's always really wonderful to talk to you here on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman to talk about why he thinks too much choice is hurting us here in America. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.